Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, February 7th. In today's news, President Trump is determined to make an example out of Alexander Vindman. Joe Biden is nowhere to be found in New Hampshire. And honeybees are dying off because of climate change. But first, the big idea. A Chinese doctor who was silenced by police for trying to share news about the new coronavirus long before Chinese health authorities disclosed its full threat died after coming down with the illness. This is triggering an outpouring of anger online toward the ruling Communist Party. Li Wenliang, a 34-year-old ophthalmologist at Wuhan Central Hospital, became a national hero and a symbol of the Chinese government's systematic failings last month. Lee had tried to warn his medical school classmates on December 30th about the existence of a contagious new virus that closely resembled the deadly Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, known as SARS. Word began to spread in China thanks to Lee, but his posts were censored, and he was arrested and detained on January 1st for, quote, rumor-mongering. Lee was released from detention on January 3rd, but only after he signed a forced confession written for him by the police— in which he admitted that he committed an illegal act by making, quote, untrue statements on social media and promising that he would, quote, earnestly reflect on his mistakes and never do it again. After they detained Li, Wuhan police appeared on Chinese state television to warn the public about the dangers of spreading rumors and said anyone else who did it would also face arrest. In a coordinated state media push that same day, The government urged internet users across the country to not believe any rumors that there had been any kind of an outbreak. State TV said everyone had a duty to build a, quote, clear and bright cyberspace. Days after he was released from jail in the first week of January, Lee went back to work, and he continued treating the patients who were beginning to flood into Wuhan's hospital. He began coughing on January 10th. This past Saturday, three weeks after he checked himself into his own hospital, He told his social media followers that he had finally been tested. He was indeed infected by the coronavirus. As he spent his final days in Wuhan's central intensive care unit, Lee began publicly sharing how he had sought to warn friends about this terrible new virus, his ordeal with the police, and his fight with the illness. He revealed that he lived with a pregnant wife and a young child, He said he'd quickly quarantined himself as soon as he suspected he was infected. He said his mother and father were now hospitalized for fever and were showing symptoms of the coronavirus. When word of Lee's death trickled out Thursday night, it was initially denied by the government, and then a few hours later, they confirmed it. His followers left messages on his Weibo account, that's the Chinese version of Twitter, pleading in vain for him to post just one last update. A few hours after his death was confirmed, Chinese users began repeating a literary verse to express their gratitude for a man they felt their country did not deserve. He who holds the firewood for the masses, they wrote, is the one who freezes to death in wind and snow. Sadly, the regime in Beijing has not learned its lesson. After Li's death, the communists who rule that country are now trying to censor the outpouring of condolences. The government is deleting posts that call Lee a hero and also other posts that reference the iconic lyric from the song, Do You Hear the People Sing? 
in Les Mis. Weibois is also blocking all posts that include the hashtag, I want freedom of speech. There are now more than 31,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus in mainland China. Li is one of at least 630 of his countrymen who have died from coronavirus. It could be far higher because of the government's secrecy. More foreigners continue being evacuated from the area where the outbreak began. Two more U.S. planes, carrying more than 300 of our fellow Americans, got out of Wuhan overnight. They're currently in the air. These folks will be quarantined on U.S. military installations for 14 days. Luckily, they're coming home to a country where we can say it. Lee is a hero. He did exactly what a good doctor is supposed to do. His pregnant wife, his young child, and his parents, and frankly, all the Chinese people who yearn to taste the sweet fruit of freedom of speech that we so often take for granted, will all be in my thoughts and prayers this weekend. Lee held the firewood for the masses, even though it meant he froze to death in the wind and the snow. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the National Security Council aide who testified during the House impeachment hearings, will be informed by political appointees at the White House in the coming days, two sources say it'll likely happen later today, that he is being pushed out. He will be reassigned to the Pentagon. This will take a key figure from the investigation out of the White House. Vindman had already informed senior officials at the NSC that he intended to take an early exit from his assignment and leave his post by the end of February. He's packed up his belongings, anticipating something like this might happen after the Senate voted to acquit the president. But Trump is eager to make a very public example out of the Purple Heart recipient. Trump has complained frequently about Vindman. Yesterday, he publicly criticized him and his brother, two immigrants who both work on the NSC. In private, Trump's gone further. The president has mocked Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's accent and the way he wore his uniform during his congressional testimony. Trump has also discussed with senior aides removing other national security officials who testified or cooperated in any way with House Democrats. Trump has called them disloyal traitors. He's asking his loyalists whether he should further cull or otherwise purge his National Security Council staff after impeachment. Trump remains incensed that so many people in his administration testified last year about his alleged scheme to coerce the Ukrainian government to announce an investigation into Joe Biden, his political opponent, by freezing vital military aid that Kiev needed to fend off the ongoing Russian invasion. Advisors to this president say Trump is already thinking about a scorched-earth nine-month campaign and how Democrats might attack him next. He's trying to land some punches of his own. Additionally, Trump allies say the president sees it as valuable to frame the previous investigations, including the Mueller probe, as witch hunts because he expects more probes and more damaging information to emerge about his personal conduct and finances. The president has told aides that Democrats will continue to investigate his taxes, his cabinet officials, and his private secret interactions with foreign leaders. Trump has also asked Republican lawmakers what options he has to exact revenge on Adam Schiff for his leading role in the impeachment process. In case you missed it yesterday, Trump celebrated his acquittal with an angry, raw, and vindictive 62-minute rant. He spoke without a teleprompter. He cursed in the East Room. 
He called the House Speaker a horrible person. He lorded his power over a full room of deferential Republicans. He mocked Mitt Romney as an embittered loser. Trump's comments reflected the id of a president who has seethed for months with rage. Trump offered no words of regret, insisting, as he has repeatedly, that he did nothing wrong, that his conduct was perfect. Instead, he vented. He said Democrats would have tried to remove George Washington from office for winning the Revolutionary War if they could have. At one point, he held up a copy of Thursday's Washington Post with the headline, Trump acquitted. He said he's going to get it framed. The White House opened the East Room event to the press corps. About an hour before the president was due to start speaking, aides scrambled to rearrange the lectern placement to allow Trump to enter from Cross Hall. The idea was to produce a dramatic television shot that's traditionally lent gravitas and a presidential air to official statements. Barack Obama used that angle to announce the killing of Osama bin Laden in 2011. Number two, just five days before the New Hampshire primary, Joe Biden's bus was parked yesterday in front of the castle-themed Radisson Hotel in Nashua, where he's been staying, but the candidate was nowhere to be found. Biden spent yesterday huddling with his top advisors at his home in Wilmington, Delaware, seeking a reset and perhaps a last-ditch effort to save his candidacy, beginning with tonight's debate on ABC. He held no public events. In one troublesome sign for the financially strapped campaign, he canceled $150,000 in television ads scheduled for South Carolina, which votes February 29th, and he moved the money to Nevada, where the February 22nd contest follows New Hampshire's. This is an acknowledgment that the Biden campaign cannot sustain a continued run of bad news. Some of Biden's supporters were growing agitated with the campaign, struggling to point to any one piece of it that's been successful. His organizing operation is struggling, his fundraising numbers have never been impressive, and his message is muddled. Yesterday, Andrew Yang also fired dozens of staffers after his abysmal fifth-place finish in Iowa. Among those fired were the national political and policy directors, as well as the deputy national political director, all senior-level positions. Meanwhile, overnight tracking polls in New Hampshire show that Pete Buttigieg continues to surge into second place behind Bernie Sanders. Sanders declared yesterday afternoon in New Hampshire that he won Iowa. With 100% of precincts now reporting overnight, Buttigieg holds a narrow lead of 26.2% in state delegate equivalents, the traditional metric by which an Iowa winner has been declared. Sanders has 26.1%, but still holds a slight lead in the popular vote. Number three, bumblebee populations in North America and Europe have been plummeting as a result of extreme temperatures. This is from a new study in the journal Science. The number of areas populated by bumblebees has fallen 46% in North America and 17% in Europe. And this new research finds that regions with sharp bee declines also experienced the strongest variations in climate, especially higher temperatures and worse heat waves. Unlike many other insects, bumblebees are especially sensitive to temperatures. Their large hair-covered bodies give them an ability to internally heat up by flapping their wings at different speeds, but that also makes them more vulnerable in hot weather. This new study is another major piece of bad news for bee populations. Declining colonies of commercial honeybees have been blamed on a strange phenomenon called colony collapse disorder, but also probably spring from a bevy of other causes. Now, this new research suggests that bumblebees in the wild are suffering too. The loss of bumblebee populations is alarming because they play a central role in pollinating many plants, including key cash crops such as tomatoes 
and cranberries. This study from the University of Ottawa and University College London compared the observed locations for 66 species of bumblebees between 1901 and 1974 with places where they could be found between the year 2000 and 2014. They found that nearly half of all the regions in North America where bumblebees had been recorded in that earlier period no longer register any bees in the later period. It's unclear whether the bees might recover. The Franklin bumblebee is a specific species once found in the region where California and Oregon meet. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently proposed an endangered species listing for that bee. But it may not actually happen because it's unclear whether there are any Franklin bees left to protect. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, February 7th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you on Monday.